Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. My name's Kia Milburn, and today I'm joined for a very special microdose by Wu Ming Wen, also known as Roberto Bui. Thanks for joining us, Roberto. Hi, thank you for having me. Let me just do a little introduction for the audience. So Roberto is part of a of, of Wu Ming, which is a, a writing collective in Italy, who've offered several collective uh, novels together. And Roberto's also produced several individual novels under the under the the, the name Wooming One, and in fact, you've also uh, produced uh, works of non-fiction, and I'd probably say some works in between non-fiction and fiction, which we perhaps will get to uh, get to in a moment. Wooming emerged from what I assume is a group of friends in the nineteen nineties who took part in activities under the collective pseudonym Luther Blissett. So Luther Blissett was a, was a pseudonym under which people could sort of participate to build a collective myth. I, I like the name. I love the name Luther Blissett because he's, <laughs> the, the name is referenced to a footballer who I remember from playing from Watford, but who also played uh, for AC Milan, who had a, a rather disastrous spell at AC Milan, I believe. So from that, Roberto, I'm, I'm imagining that, um, that you're an AC Milan fan. Is that true? Uh, not exactly, not exactly. But uh, Luther Blissett was quite famous because of his disastrous uh, season in 1983-84 in the Italian league. So he was frequently referenced as an, an example of uh, a foreign player who couldn't uh, fit into the extremely defensive uh, Italian game. I remember he got he got signed for like a big amount, which I can't remember, and then he got sold for a year later for like half that amount or something in the great tradition of British failures that uh, I embraced wholeheartedly. Let me just continue the story. So Luther Blissett, or the, or the Luther Blissett project, there were a whole series of activities that took place uh, under that pseudonym, and some of which might be called sort of media pranks or guerrilla media, I remember was another term in the, in the sort of mid to late 1990s that, that was current. And then in 1999, um, a novel was released called Q uh, under the name Luther Blissett, which was written by by Roberto and and three of his friends or co-writers, who then went on after after Luther Blissett was was a bit of a hit actually. Uh, the, the novel Q was a bit of a hit. Then went on to to form the collective Wu Ming and to and to, and to write novels, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Q was a really big novel for me actually, Roberto. Mm-hmm. I have the words. Omnia sunt communia tattooed on my on my arm. In fact, I, I I forced four of my friends to also have Omnia sunt communia tattooed on their arms to celebrate my fortieth birthday. Make of that what you will. But Omnia sunt communia means um, everything in common, or other people have, have interpreted it as um, everything for everyone. And it was like the watchword of of Thomas Munson, the peasant rebellion that that he led, and that plays a sort of pivotal role in the in the novel Q, and we'll get to that, I think, in a moment. But one of the prompts for me wanting to talk with you, Roberto, is is the work you've been doing, sort of analysing QAnon and related phenomena, and then providing what I think are really, really useful concepts for trying to to help us work through the, the what's going on with, with, with this sort of like conspiracy fantasies, as, as, as you say, and how we might distinguish that from from the, the activities that we might not want to give up on. 
and as you know, like in ACFM, we've been working with this term, the cosmic right, which I, which we're dealing with some of the same things. So that, that's the sort of context in which I wanted to start the conversation. Perhaps you could you could um, explain or tell the story of, of how you came to start to, to think about and, 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 and tackle the whole problem of QAnon. <laughs> well, that's a hell of a story. <laughs> uh, that's what we want. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, the first person to alert us about the rise of QAnon was Florian Kramer, uh, an old friend, uh, German friend, a veteran of the Luther Brissett Project and some sort of expert uh, in far-right digital culture. He sent us an email in the spring of uh, 2018. He, he informed us that someone had apparently taken inspiration from Luther Brissett uh, to craft a conspiracy theory for the alt-right. That's how he put it. And nowadays, we, we usually draw a, a distinction between QAnon and the alt-right. They're not one and the same. There are differences. But in the first half of 2018, QAnon was still very much associated with its origins on 4chan. And it still uh, revolves around the, the so-called uh, Q-drops, uh, which were posted on 8chan. Uh, and those places were uh, hangouts uh, of, of the alt-right. So the, the association was uh, automatic. Shortly thereafter, other people wrote to us too uh, because the QAnon story sounded familiar to them. It was basically the plot uh, um, of our novel Q, which I wrote uh, with uh, three other comrades uh, uh, between 1995 and 1998 as our last contribution to the Luther Brissett Project. Later, we became Wuming after the end of the Luther Brissett Project. Q was published in Italy in March 1999. For, for many reasons, it, its publication was an event. Uh, um, in, um, in a work uh, of theory titled Anti-Book on the Art and Politics of Book Radical Publishing, uh, Nicholas Thoburn uh, provided a very intriguing analysis of that moment, the moment in which um, uh, Q was published, probably the best one available in English. He described Q as an anti-book uh, concept he devised himself, by which he means a printed, published work with which its authors write and use in uh, uh, strategical ways to reflect upon the role that the, the, the act, the very act of publishing books uh, can play under capitalism. It's a little bit complex. Uh, uh, it's a book that disrupts expectations about books. Um, uh, we can't delve into this right now. I'm, I'm, I'm digressing. Well, Q was an international bestseller. It was translated into many languages, uh, um, although it's, it's an American publication in uh, 2004, received mixed reviews and went largely unnoticed except from, from, from some niches of radicals. Um, uh, to, uh, so, some words uh, uh, about the plot. The novel takes place in Central Europe, the Netherlands and Northern Italy in the first half uh, of the 16th century. It is a kind of long-distance duel between two characters. Uh, one is a subversive heretic operating under different names, and the other one is a Catholic agent who infiltrates the radical movements of the time. He spreads uh, disinformation uh, um, among radicals, heretics, Anabaptists, uh, rebellious peasants. The agent uh, uh, continually sends, all along the book, he sends dispatches to his superiors in Rome, signing them with the uh, biblical name Coelet, uh, often shortened to Q. 
Um, our Q, the Q of the novel, pretends to be someone very close to power and to have access to confidential information, which he decided to share with radicals. Uh, he begins a correspondence with Thomas Munzer, the preacher who was the religious and political leader of the peasant revolt that broke out in some parts of Germany in uh, 1524. And by sending letters to Munzer with false info, false intel, he convinces the insurgents together near uh, the, at a town in Thuringia called Frankenhausen to fight the ultimate battle, the final battle between the forces of good and evil to rid uh, uh, the land of uh, princes, uh, bishops and corrupt authorities. And then there will be some sort of great spiritual awakening and, and so on. Uh, instead, the peasants uh, fall into a death trap. There is carnage and the revolt is uh, suppressed and defeated. I'm not, I'm not spoiling anything because uh, y y people uh, read about this in the very first chapter uh, of the novel. <laughs> well, uh, of course, uh, uh, other revolts will take place, will follow, uh, and our protagonist, the heretic, uh, will take part in them, but there will also be Q all the time to sabotage the uprisings, uh, uprisings at, at the behest of his superior, Cardinal Carafa. Now, now, take the premise of QAnon's narrative. An anonymous figure sending dispatches signed at Q signed Q pretending to have access to very valuable intel from the top echelons of the US federal government, uh, purportedly taking as a mission to share that uh, intel with radicals, uh, in this case, of course, right-wing radicals, you know, Trumpists, uh, saying uh, that there's gonna be a final battle between the forces of good and, and evil, the, the famous, the storm, you know. Uh, it, it's basically, it's the same, the same plot. Uh, it was so disturbing for us to see this incredible phenomenon. It's as if in uh, autumn 2017, uh, that's when the whole thing started, someone began uh, to play a, a role-playing game uh, based on our novel. And, and we still find it plausible, uh, even today, that the person who posted the first batches of Q-drops on Fortune was inspired by some elements of our novel. I'm not talking about QAnon as a movement. That's a common misconception. Uh, you know, there were some uh, headlines uh, on uh, Anglo-American websites saying the novel that inspired uh, QAnon. Not, it's not exactly like uh, that. Uh, the movement we came to know since then, uh, QAnon, has nothing to do with our novel. We, we, uh, we're talking about the beginning of the Q phenomenon before it was hijacked by Jim and Ron Watkins and other far-right scammers and entrepreneurs, uh, before it got bigger and bigger. We're talking about the first person who started to post the Q-drops. Um, what was uh, his or her purpose, the purpose of this initiator? Uh, it may simply have been to play a prank, uh, which was far from unusual on 4chan. You know, they call it shitposting. Uh, So-called shitposting was the rule. Um, but one of our early hypotheses um, is that the whole thing started out as a, as a hoax by anti-Trump activists, then got out of hand. Uh, we may never know for sure uh, if it was like that, who this guy was. 
several studies, stylometric studies of, of the Q-drops uh, uh, concluded that uh, this person stopped writing at the beginning of December uh, 2017 and never reappeared, it never came back. Uh, anyway, of course, we, the authors of Q, uh, felt involved, we felt interpolated by, by this discovery, by what was going on. And, but we also felt interpolated for another reason. Uh, in the middle 90s, we played um, very complex media hoaxes uh, in Bologna and the rest of Italy as part of a big uh, counter-investigation and solidarity campaign uh, with uh, innocent uh, people who were in jail. Um, the subject was Satanic Ritual Abuse, SRA, an urban legend which fueled many conspiracy fantasies uh, in, the, in, the, um, in the last uh, 40 years, more or less. Uh, the context uh, was that of uh, three um, innocent men uh, belonging to a cultural association interested in heavy metal, occultism, and stuff like that. They were called the Bambini di Satana, the children of Satan. They were framed and jailed for a year and a half on horrific charges before being acquitted at trial. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, the media uh, turned them into monsters. Monsters. In response to that, the Luther Grissett Project started a campaign to prove that the satanic ritual abuse was nothing more than an urban legend and that the, the, the accusations were based on a conspiratorial fantasy on part of the inquiring magistrate. So we carried out intensive investigative work into this subject, the satanic panic, the satanic ritual abuse, and other reactionary hate legends and conspiracy fantasy. Our research and our campaign contributed to the acquittal of the defendants. But our aim was to dismantle satanic ritual abuse as a hate legend through a story that was stronger and funnier then the conspiracy fantasy it opposed. So we invented a, a satanic insurgency and an anti-satanist patrol whose members were fanatical Christians. They were called the Comitato per la Salvaguardia della Morale, the Committee for the Safeguard of Morals. So we invented both groups, the satanists and the anti-satanists. We invented their actions uh, black masses that were in, violently, violently interrupted by this vigilante group. Uh, it was all fake. Uh, inventions uh, that uh, the, the Italian media uh, took for true for a long time, for more than a year. Uh, uh, we made the news many times uh, because it was very easy to exploit mass hysteria on Satanism and pedophilia to get stories in the press and in the telly. At some point, we claimed the responsibility for all those hoaxes, uh, and we explained how and why we played them, and that was the key moment. Um, uh, in this claim, uh, in this case, our claim was uh, an important contribution to the acquittal and release of, of the accused. But then, more than 20 years later, uh, satanic ritual abuse, the hate legend that we, we had defeated locally in Bologna, was rising again globally. 
because uh, uh, satanic ritual abuse uh, is now at the center of QAnon's narrative, you know, the cabal, slave children, uh, members of, uh, um, of the pedo-satanistic uh, cabal uh, sucking the blood of children uh, and stuff like that, you know? So, we, of course, we have to do something. So, um, I in particular I in particular I decided to resume our studies studies on satanic panic and investigate the phenomenon of QAnon in particular and conspiratorialism in general. Uh, so I worked hard for three years and the result is my book, which was published last year in Italy, uh, La Cu di Complotto, The Q of Conspiracy, and was recently published in France with uh, uh, the title Q Com Complot. You're right. That is an incredible story. <laughs> in fact, it's it's so incredible the, the sort of overlaps between between Q and and Q the novel, but also the the history of the Luther Blissett project. You know, is tempting to take that story further and, and like you know, imagine that the originator of the of Q and the original writer of those first Q drops was perhaps a leftist who was trying to lead the the alt right into its own Frankenhausen, which occurred in January the sixth with the invasion. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, when I first heard the the idea that perhaps QAnon mirrored the novel Q, I was wondering whether that perhaps that was an intervention by Wu Ming to to try to do a counter myth, <laughs> to establish a counter myth, to undermine you know the right's faith in in the Q novels. And it's that thing where like where does it stop this imagining plots on plots? So that's a long drawn out way, Roberto. I was trying to say <laughs> <laughs> that there's there needs to be some distinctions made, doesn't there? Right? Like the thing that disturbs me about perhaps QAnon, but also you know a lot of the alt right and the sort of meme magic sort of uh, ideas that the the alt right were playing with with this Kekistan and Trump being a god emperor and all these sorts of things. You know, I recognise some of the aesthetics in that, and in fact, I recognise that sort of prankish attitude. <laughs> because it, it reminds me very much of the milieu that I grew up in, in, in which that sort of attitude was much more associated with the left, of a sort of countercultural left. In fact, we'd probably want to associate it with what we call the weird left, uh, which we embrace on, on ACFM. So my question to you is, you know, in the light of, of, the, of this whole phenomenon of QAnon and this whole phenomenon of the alt-right and their sort of prankishness, do we have to give up on the idea of a weird left? Right? Do we have to sort of stop with the media pranks or can we make the clear distinction between reactionary pranks and activities and sort of leftish weirdness pranks and activities? Well, uh, sooner or later, everything gets recuperated by capital or by our mm -hmm. political enemies. And that's one of the lessons that the situationists uh, never fully understood uh, and they themselves were recuperated now they're part of the history of contemporary art and there are exhibitions about the situationist stuff like that I, I, we do not need to give up on notions of, of what you call the weird left but certainly we must understand the key aspect of our uh, current uh, situation our current predicament um, Many things that used to be weird in the 20th century are not weird anymore. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I'm talking about the traditional avant-garde repertoire, and that's an oxymoron in itself, a contradiction in terms of traditional avant-garde. Uh, that is, uh, that supply of practices, devices, and expedients that avant-garde-infused political activism used to employ. Uh, most stuff was recuperated 
by capital in such a way that we need to do a thorough inventory of the concepts that we adopt, the weapons uh, that, that, that we want to use, the effects that we aim at producing in, in people, in their perception, uh, in their mind. Uh, we have to understand what is weird uh, and also what is left, uh, a phrase which I intentionally mean in both possible meanings, you know, what is left. Uh, um, think of those surprising juxtapositions, the, the, the tournament, the diversions of meaning. Uh, the, the surrealists uh, famously uh, used this image, the fortuitous encounter of the umbrella and the sewing machine on the operating table. <laughs> in the first half um, of the 20th century, of last century, this was, this was unheard of. Uh, these tactics, uh, tactics were unprecedented. They were disturbing and, and, and refreshing. Um, this kept working for some time in the 30 years, more or less, uh, 30 years after the Second World War, uh, the period which the French call Le Trente Glorieuses, uh, the glorious 30 years, uh, the years of um, uh, capitalist development, economic boom, and, and, and the expansion of uh, civil rights uh, and consumerism as well. Uh, compared to uh, our media landscape, uh, today's media landscape, uh, uh, the media offer back then was very limited and rigid. Uh, uh, the techniques I'm talking about, you know, cut up, uh, fold in, the tournament, um, ironical re, uh, recycle, recycling of uh, the materials of mass culture, of pop culture, these all came from outside the dominant culture. The, 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 these tactics would uh, trespass, they would cross uh, semiotic and technological fences. They would uh, unite what uh, seemed to be divided, what appeared divided, and they brought together what, what, uh, what appeared uh, distant. Um, one of the slogans that I frequently uh, cite, that I frequently quote as an example, is one of the most famous slogans of, of the French May 68, uh, Sous les pavés la plage, under the cobblestones, the beach. Uh, that was a great slogan. Um, and other examples are um, those situationist comic strips uh, that, that, that became revolutionary uh, tracts by changing the lines in the balloons. Or uh, think of punk, uh, Queen Elizabeth with the punk safety pin on her lips. Um, that uh, was what uh, Mikhail Bakhtin, the Russian literary theorist, uh, uh, had seen uh, in Gargantuan Pantagruel by, by Rabelais. I'm quoting from memory. Uh, break all the false hierarchical links between things and ideas. Um, uh, set things free. Um, uh, let them uh, uh, enter uh, into new unions, however bizarre they may seem. Um, bring together and unite was was uh, what was uh, uh, divided uh, uh, and disjoin what was brought together by the dominant ideology. You know? uh, in, in order to work, such a strategy must be based on basically one thing. Uh, ratification uh, because without ratification there can be no surprise no shock, no, no unexpectedness no, 
new expressive value. Uh, it's a little bit like with uh, cuss words, you know, bad words, foul language. If you use a cuss word once in a while, it may add uh, a force uh, and expressive value to what you say. But if you put uh, a fuck or fucking in every half sentence, it subtracts force and expressive value. It makes your language poorer and ineffective. And I think that there's no better example for this than irony. Uh, I, I write a lot about this in, in my book uh, on QAnon, irony. Irony is uh, the rhetorical figure most of these cultural interventions are based off. You know, detournement, uh, situation is detournement, is all about irony. Uh, you know, cut-up techniques are about the mechanical production of irony, and so on. Um, uh, if if uh, this answer is getting too long, stop me because <laughs> I know the reasoning is very complex. Uh, so, well, I'll, I'll I'll try and prompt you to go further. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, because because I, I quite like this idea that well, perhaps we live in we, we we probably live in a world of in which is drenched in irony, but also perhaps one yeah, yeah. in which irony and irony is allied to cynicism, perhaps right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to a sort of sense of cynicism that 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 that. Um, which is which, which which tends to be conservative, if not reactionary, because the cynicism is things are the way they are; they can't be changed. Therefore, you know, um, if you believe if you believe that things can be changed, then you're naive. And irony always relies on that double audience, right? You have a yeah. a supposed naive audience, and then you have the the audience that understands the irony, and your complicit exactly. your complicit audience, and the humor comes from the from mocking the um the apparently uh, naive audience right which is a very difficult thing to get out of because if you you know any expression of, of political sincerity therefore you know you can be is immediately subject to that to, to to mockery in some sort of way so how do we get out of that do we need some sort of do we need sincerity or do we need some sort of sincerity linked to a sort of criticality or something like that well we think it <laughs> Uh, I think that in such a scenario, uh, in such a media landscape uh, uh, saturated with images and information, hyper-connected, always on, never off, uh, overwhelming, uh, we we must ask ourselves what communication strategies and tactics could pierce the membrane of dominant ideology. So uh, I think that our toolbox, uh, I insist on this in the book, our toolbox must be Inventoried, reinventoried, rearranged. Uh, for each tool uh, that we have in the box, we must find out uh, uh, whether it still has an effective critical use or not. But, but, but the main issue is that of subjectivity. Uh, the who, who does it? Who is supposed to use the mm. tools? Uh, because the avant-garde doesn't work uh, anymore. Small groups of experimenters are not enough. Uh, tactical units, uh, uh, no small group can work and no individual thinker, no individual artist, uh, aesthetic interventionist. Uh, this is a collective uh, thing to do. The inventory has to be taken as collectively as possible. Uh, uh, social movements at large are the ones to do it. Uh, uh, during the, the past decade, uh, the, 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 the 2010s, uh, we, we've seen mass movements utterly rewrite the book of street tactics, uh, sometimes with stunning uh, psychogeographical inventiveness, 
as when uh, we saw uh, the, the gilet jaune, the French yellow vests, uh, uh, infused with completely new meanings, uh, such dull locations as roundabouts on the outskirts of towns. Uh, other times with great, uh, incredible creativity in redefining the, the, the rules, the unwritten rules of confrontation with the police, uh, of rioting, uh, as happened in Hong Kong, for example. Uh, I think the new movements must do and will do the same thing as far as the toolbox of language and concepts and aesthetic interventions are concerned. Uh, I think that the most important thing is to build uh, narratives that can be shared and become environments. And this was the thing that mattered most to us, uh, to the Luther Blissett project, much more than looking for shock value or anything like that. Uh, Luther Blissett was uh, about inventing and narrating stories. The Luther Blissett project was a big alternate reality game with a lot of sub-games constantly going on, you know, uh, smaller networks in which many kinds of role-playing took place. Uh, Luther Blissett played with a great number of arts, forms, concepts, and disciplines. First of all, there was the multiple name itself that was an incredible tool to use. You know, everybody can be Luther Blissett. And then there were the media pranks, the media stunts, radio, video, music, fanzines, performance art, conspiracy fantasies. Uh, our tactics of uh, culture jamming were not uh, important in themselves. Uh, um, they, they always aimed at building and keeping alive the, the network uh, uh, of people around the Luther Blissett legend, the open community, the open reputation of Luther Blissett as a folk hero. Uh, uh, because we, we understood the limits of culture jamming. You know, uh, it, it is, we're talking in the same years. Uh, in which uh, Adbusters was uh, active, Yes Men, uh, it was, it was the work on the tactical media stuff. But we could see that culture jamming actions had uh, an increasingly shorter cycle of effectiveness uh, before losing their edge and become part of the general media blob, you know. Uh, we, uh, we felt it was necessary to slow down the cycle, to uh, prolong the game, to delay its end. Uh, and and <laughs> I found it bizarre when I heard that this guy, Edmund Berger, in a book titled Grungy Accelerationism, included the Lucid Blizzard Project in, in the genealogy of, uh, of accelerationism, of that philosophical political economy. It's bizarre because the Lucid Blizzard Project was more dedicated to slowing down processes than making them faster. <laughs> However, at last, in the end, we had to claim responsibility for the hoaxes because, as I, as I said, that, that was the key moment. Uh, and back then, it was still possible to claim a prank and provide the public with evidence that you were telling the truth, that it was indeed you who did it. Uh, but since then, things have changed a lot. The media landscape is radically different. And, uh, uh, today, a fake story remains in circulation without any claim. Uh, its proliferation may be so swirling as to overwhelm uh, uh, the very idea of being able to claim it. Uh, uh, think of the Q-drops. Were they part of a prank? At least at the beginning, even if someone came out and confessed that they were indeed part of a prank, would we believe them? They would immediately raise the suspicion that it's just another act of manipulation, just a, a, a hoax within the hoax. So in today's media landscape, most likely, our old 1990s tactics couldn't work like that. But I think that this spirit, we must retain the spirit, the spirit in which we conducted our guerrilla warfare, can be still inspiring. We have to defy 
conspiracy fantasies and the cosmic right and all that stuff with stories that are more interesting, more intriguing, more engaging, more funny than any conspiracy fantasy. That's perfect. Just to, uh, I want to, I want to push you a little bit further on that as well, because I know in your in the the book Cuda Complotto, you draw on all sorts of examples, but you you draw on stage ma- magicians, stage yeah. magic, uh, yeah. in order to try to think through how we may be able to work every through this minefield. Do you want to talk a little bit about about that, perhaps, and, and perhaps your critique of of the sort of debunking yeah. attitude towards conspiracy fantasies? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, in, in in my book, I, I write a lot about um, enchantment and the necessity of re-enchantment. Um, so I have to clarify a bit what I mean by that, by enchantment and disenchantment. Um, we live uh, in the enchantment of disenchantment. <laughs> uh, that's what capitalism did to us. Um, in, in every moment of our days and nights, except uh, maybe when we sleep, but the the logic of capitalism is trying to figure out how to eliminate sleep. (laughs) uh, uh, We sleep less and less. Uh, We are subjected to uh, a worldview, uh, a framing uh, worldview in which everything is considered uh, calculable, um, quantifiable, reducible to numbers, to, to digits, to algorithms, uh, uh, programmable, and I don't even know if such a word exists, pigeonholeable, <laughs> and then engineerable, re-engineerable. A- every human uh, behavior and action uh, is uh, represented as uh, segmentable, uh, optimizable. It can be reduced to a performance, to grades, uh, to scores, to records. To numbers, every element of the world becomes data. Data and what we do, what we want, what we like and dislike. Uh, data on how we work, on on the pace we can plausibly keep at work, short of before collapsing. Uh, this uh, French thinker, actually, he's a Franco-Argentinian thinker, Miguel Benasayag, describes this process as colonization of existing by functioning. I mean, the, 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 the functioning colonizes the existing. Everything must function and be functional for something else. And of course, this keeps us uh, constantly competing against each other. Uh, I think everyone noticed that everything has become a competition. Everywhere you see juries, votes, eliminations. Uh, this, uh, th- there was um, a, a, a proliferation of reality shows and talent shows, and even cake competitions have become ferocious battles. Uh, and you have to work faster than your colleagues, so Amazon fires them instead of you. You gotta have more likes under your posts. Uh, you, you gotta get higher grades, uh, etc. This is the enchantment of capitalism. This is what they call the enchantment of capitalism. It's a spell. The spell um, cast by um, unidimensional, monodimensional modernity that has nothing to do with the complexity of the elusive complexity and richness of the world. Um, It is enchantment and disenchantment at the same time because uh, uh, it it inhibits... uh, uh, disqualifies, often even criminalizes all other forms of enchantment that go in other directions. Uh, and it does so in, in the name of reason, 
reason with a capital R, science with a capital S, and all the rest is uh, superstition, you know, myths, uh, ignorance. Uh, um, uh, uh, the typical example is uh, what is called scientism, uh, a blind belief in science with a capital S uh, that in the end is anti-scientific, anti-scientific and superstitious. Uh, for example, in these years of pandemic emergency, we've been more than ever hostage to this way of thinking, a, a 19th century concep conception of science. Every time a positivistic uh, conception of science, every time uh, we have heard people proclaim science says that, we, we should have replied, first of all, there is no such thing as science. There are sciences in the plural. Secondly, we were commenting provisional results of partial research, uh, preprints, anticipations of articles that uh, hadn't yet been scrutinized by the scientific community. So such a certainty, such an assertive tone uh, was uh, completely out of place. Uh, but but uh, this is what happens. Uh, usually a believer in scientism uh, confuses the, the temporary results, the provisional results of uh, research with uh, uh, the, the more established truths of sciences and gives uh, the same authority to, to both things uh, when, in fact, uh, an article on the contagiousness of asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2 positives is one thing, the laws of thermodynamics are another. So we're, we're living inside cages within cages made of numbers. And that makes us sick, of course, it makes us ill. Uh, and we often don't understand why. Uh, the, the fact that we always have to live up to it, we have to deliver a never-ending performance, uh, we have to compete all the time, uh, and we're continually being uh, assessed and evaluated. Um, so the, the, the need for a different life, different than that, is irrepressible. And also the need to re-enchant the world. Uh, uh, this explains the success of conspiracy fantasies. They try to give you an explanation for your malaise in terms of uh, there's someone conspiring against you. Of course, of course, uh, uh, you, you feel bad because there's a conspiracy against you. And also, this explains the success of the various New Age and New Agey movements uh, advocating new spiritualities, uh, alternative therapies and stuff like that. Um, these movements are not really alternative to the dominant ideology. For example, many currents of New Age culture embrace the same model of competition as uh, neoliberalism. Uh, to them, life is an ongoing performance. It's all about individual self-improvement, self-management, levels to overcome, a kind of biometrics of the soul, you no know, biometrics of the spirit. There's no moving away from the market logic. Uh, on the contrary, the, the, these movements try to engineer the human, uh, but they represent this engineering as a work on your inner self. And, uh, going back to conspiracy fantasies, um, a point uh, I insist very much in my book. Conspiracy fantasies intercept social discontent and they pervert kernels of truth about how lousy capitalist society is. Uh, conspiratorialism provides people with a substitute for anti-capitalism and class war. But they also, and that's, uh, that's very important, they also intercept a need for wonder, for enchantment. Conspiratorialism is fascinating and it fuses your life with a new meaning. It gives you 
a truth with a capital T for which you can be an evangelist. It gives you a cause to fight for. It, 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 it gives you a community to do it with, albeit a, a virtual community, some people on a, on a Facebook group or, a, or a, a, a Telegram channel, but it's a community nonetheless. Uh, at the core, there's a need for reenchantment, especially during the pandemic and during the lockdowns. Many people realized that their life was shitty. It was completely meaningless. The job was devastating them. So we have this gigantic phenomenon, the big quit with millions of people leaving their jobs all over the West. Uh, it's precisely at that moment when you realize uh, that, that, you realize that your life has no meaning and, and you start looking for explanation for that. It's precisely at that moment that conspiratorialism holds out its hand and says, come with me, come with me. I have the answer and the answer will make your life meaningful again because you will know the truth at last. No counter-narrative will work if it does not intercept and hijack that very need. That's why we, we, we're trying to work with many materials, including magic, no, in order to understand that. Um, because conspiracy narratives must be approached on that terrain, not just the terrain of logic, fact-checking, debunking, the stance of intellectual arrogance, which I call Racial suprematism, we know these people are ignorant, they would believe anything, uh, uh, this is just crap, uh, that's not true, stuff like that. The difference between a conspiracy fantasy and the counter-narrative that we need is that we must keep together re-enchantment re and critical thinking. That is the challenge. We have to embrace re-enchantment of the world without giving up on uh, having a, a critical vision, a critical method, a critical analysis of the world. That's fantastic. Thanks. Um, I want to push a little bit more on this on this notion of um, of enchantment and what how we might how we might understand it or even wonder perhaps. <laughs> like on the on, on ACFM, when we we discuss sort of magic and in its various sorts of forms, um, and and we were sort of, we kept coming back to this idea that perhaps. You know, we can understand some of these practices as as attempts to maintain an openness to like just how complex the world is, and then perhaps that's why we might critique what you call ratio suprematism, which sees the project of reason as closed, actually, as finished in yeah. some sort of way. Yeah. Um, but the other thing I had in my, in my my head was the idea that perhaps what we're talking about is like an exceeding of the, the like practices, or perhaps even moments when our sense of what's possible gets exceeded and that sort of like that that sort of almost vertiginous feeling that the world is like repotentialized in, in, in some sort of way it made me think of um Giorgio Gambon writing back in um the early 2000s I think talking about um Jewish traditions of thinking about heaven and he said heaven is just like in that tradition heaven is just like our life on earth but it's one inch to the left <laughs> and i always interpreted that as that one inch to the left is that that is a world which is repotentialized in which the fetishisms that that, that construct our lives such as capitalism fetishism so is concepts such as race etc etc yeah once those are overcome you basically have the same life but like full of potential is that is that what we're getting at when we talk about enchantment 
Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I, I, I arrived to this through literature because, of course, my main field of intervention is literature. It's not uh, not philosophy, like in Agamben's case, not uh, other other forms. Of course, I, I I'm a novelist, and I I think I I have a good understanding of uh, how powerful literature can be to repotentialize the world. It does it. Uh, it does this through empathy, uh, because you know we can draw from the whole of culture. Uh, we can draw from literature, art, magic, stage magic, also from those non-Western cultures that retain elements that aren't yet fully assimilated by capital. You know that there are still some. Uh, gaps, uh, some um, uh, empty spaces that are not empty, of course, they full with uh, forms of life uh, that, uh, uh, that capital hasn't uh, uh, yet fully in- co-opted, integrated, commodified, etc. So we can draw examples um, if we talk about repotentializing the world, re-enchanting uh, the world. I also, I also draw from my experience, uh, Luther Bliss's pranks on satanic panic. You know, we, uh, at the time, we were the protagonists of a story that once told turned out to be far more fascinating and interesting and engaging uh, and enchanting than the conspiracy fantasies that we were fighting. You know, because the story was these guys fooled the media for a year by inventing a satanic cult and a Catholic fascist vigilante group, and they did that in order to help some self-styled satanists rotting in jail, and they used the name of a British footballer uh, that's a great story, you know. And we not only told that story; we explained every aspect. We gave the public all the tools that they needed to understand how we did it. So, reenchantment and critical thinking together. But I, I was talking about literature because I'm constantly digressing. Sorry, uh, literature does. If you think of it, it does the opposite of what the social media are doing to us. The opposite, uh, because these big platforms do nothing but reinforce a perception, an experience uh, that's uh, tailor-made on on us, on on me, me as an individual, uh, me uh, as a user. Uh, Thanks to the continuous, uh, constant drilling into my way of of existing, my my behavior, my, my needs, my habits, my preferences, uh, this drilling to extract data with which to personalize my experience. Now, as a result, on, on social network, it, it, it's become almost impossible to put yourself in the shoes of someone else, in the shoes and minds of others, because everything is just for you. It's customized, continually adapted to the perception that you already have. You, you, you're inside your epistemic bubble. Uh, uh, thanks to algorithms that that suggest content based on what you already think and what you already like, how is re-enchantment possible under these conditions? There is no re-enchantment without the possibility of putting yourself in the shoes of someone else. Uh, Literature does exactly that, especially novels, but not only novels. Um, uh, Literature allows me to to live other lives, albeit temporarily. It puts me it puts me in the shoes of people who live in other times, other places, even over other planets, or, or, or here in the present day, like me. Uh, and we could say that they're beside me. And maybe they live in the same town, uh, in a, in a fictional version of it. But they have 
experiences that are different from mine. So literature allows me to, to multiply the angles, to depersonalize my gaze, my perception, and that's a repotentialization of the world. And then there's magic. As, as you said, we are very interested in stage magic, in mentalism, uh, etc. Uh, we uh, actually we collaborate with magicians, especially one, um, Mariano Tomatis. Um, he's a, a historian of uh, stage magic. Uh, he's a comrade, uh, and he tries to um, reconceptualize stage magic in a radical, anti-capitalistic ways. He started his exploration by asking himself a question. If by magic we mean uh, things that stand out from the normal, from the ordinary, they stand out from the background of everyday life and, and produce wonder, why is it so rare to see stage magic associated with critical thinking about the world? Um, with practices uh, that abolish the present state of things. Why is stage magic so disassociated from that? Why are the figures of the magician and the mentalist uh, more often than not uh, drenched in machismo and uh, associated to a bourgeois and reactionary imaginary? Um, so he, he tried to answer uh, this question. He, he wrote several books. Uh, I suggest you to check out Mariano's work. There's, there's also material in English. Uh, but, but many other strategies of re-enchantment uh, are, are possible. Uh, one can start uh, from all kinds of fields and elements. For example, from the names of streets and squares. The, 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 that's uh, name, the names of the streets uh, you, you, you walk uh, every day. Most of the time, we take them for granted. But uh, when we reactivate the story and the meaning of a street name, it can evoke uh, ghosts, it can uh, um, arouse wonder. We did that many times as Wu Ming in Bologna and in other places with streets named after forgotten heroes of the resistance, for example, partisans. Or on the contrary, with streets and squares in, in Italian towns, there are many of them whose names still celebra celebrate forgotten episodes, forgotten horrors of Italian colonialism in Africa and the Balkans. We stir up the ghosts. Uh, of, of the stories, you no, know? and there's a some sort of reenchantment of the world when people who usually take that street name for granted, they never ask themselves why a street has that name and not another name, etc. All of a sudden, they start to think of it, and they see a story, and they see ghosts, ghosts in that street. That's another form of enchantment starting from autonomy, from the names of streets and squares and monuments, etc. You know, I, I, um, a couple of years ago, I recorded a, a sort of walking tour, a radical history walking tour of the, of the city of Leeds, where I live. We recorded it for Navarra, for Navarra Media. So when you come and visit me, Roberto, I'll take you on our, <laughs> we'll re-enchant the city of Leeds. Um, <laughs> There's so many different directions I could take this conversation. In. One of the one of the ones that comes to mind is that um, during lockdown, my one of the, the things that I, I I took up was tabletop role playing games, <laughs> and we recently recorded a, an episode on games. I really, really, I also helped design sort of political strategy games, and really, really interested in tools to help collective narrative building. Uh, the, uh, uh, just to refer back to, to to your to your discussion of, of literature. Um, 
but perhaps one of the one of the, the, the last things I wanted to push you on a, on a little bit is that uh, um, it's a return you back to philosophy. I know you don't want to go, <laughs> but I was I've I, I've read um, and and listened to you talk about about Kant's theory of the dynamical sublime. Don't turn off listeners; it's very interesting <laughs> um, because I found that that this idea. I want you to to explain explain that a little bit about how you link that to the to enchantment. It's simpler than it sounds, <laughs> yeah. Um, because when I say that um, um, uh, believing in conspiracy fantasies is empowering, is fascinating, etc., uh, some people raise this objection. How is that possible? Uh, a conspiracy fantasy such as QAnon gives you a horrible picture of the world. You should be afraid. You should be terrified, not empowered. Well, that's uh, where the dynamically sublime, a concept devised and explained um, by philosopher Immanuel Kant, comes uh, handy. It comes very handy because um, he defined the dynamically sublime as uh, that uh, kind of emotion, that feeling, uh, that intense pleasure that you uh, can feel after you've been blocked by fear. Uh, th- there's something, something happens, a storm, an earthquake, uh, a sea storm, uh, because he used a lot uh, of, of example taken from uh, natural disasters because uh, he, he lived in a pre-industrial, of course, reality. Um, and uh, he said, when, when, when there's a gigantic storm with uh, thunders and bolts uh, and uh, pouring rain and, 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 and you, you have to stay home and you're terrified because you see, you see the trees swinging, you see uh, you know, very high waves uh, in the sea and, and ships uh, uh, rocking from side to side and stuff like that. At first, you are terrified. Your vital energy gets paralyzed by fear. But in, there's a second moment in which you start to enjoy the powerfulness of all that. Okay, so at first you are frozen by fear, and but then you uh, start to enjoy the situation because uh, you're n- n- nothing harmful is really happening to you. You're inside the house, you can see f- uh, the storm from inside. That's the example. Uh, of course, I readapted the dynamically sublime to conspiratorialism and conspiracy fantasies. When uh, you, uh, as they say, take the red pill, when you get red pilled, okay, okay, you uh, learn about you learn about a horrible uh, situation, of course, because the planet is secretly ruled by a secret society of uh, pedophile satanists, uh, keeping uh, thousands or even millions of uh, children slave uh, in a state of slavery in a deep underground military bases and those children uh, get raped, uh, violated, uh, tortured uh, and beaten all the time so that uh, um, uh, their blood is rich with adrenaline, then their blood is extracted from that uh, uh, adrenaline uh, with uh, a chemical process uh, they obtain, they obtain adrenochrome and they drink uh, adrenochrome uh, in order to stay forever young. Uh, of course, adrenochrome uh, really exists, but that has no, mm, no rejuvenating 
power, uh, it's, it's a satirical invention uh, by Hunter S. Thompson in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas that adrenochrome has such incredible uh, power as a drug. Uh, nothing, nothing like that. And if, uh, if they drink it in order to stay forever young, and, and Joe Biden is among them, and, and you look at him, well, it doesn't work. But uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway. Anyway, uh, of course, this is horrible, a horrible picture. And you should be afraid because the cabal controls everything. The deep state uh, uh, it controls everything. Uh, okay, everything is a conspiracy by the cabal, etc. So at the beginning, you may feel lost. You know, how, how can I do something about such a terrible state of things? And I have no power at all. But uh, what the community tells you is that now you know the truth and this gives you power because the norm is they don't know the truth they haven't been red pilled okay so you start to feel fascinated empowered by this new mission by this cause you can fight for by by the fact that you know the secrets and you know the truth okay so you start to feel uh, yeah repotentialized empowered fascinated re-enchanted Okay, that's exactly what Kant described when he talked about the dynamically sublime. That's perfect. I mean, one of the reasons I, I really liked I like that sort of train of thought is that it made me it made me reassess what the cosmic in the cosmic right is. If you look, yeah, if you know, what yeah, I mean. absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I think uh, the co- the cosmic right is a, a great image because it keeps together the political and the metaphysical. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so the cosmic in the cosmic right might be the like the cosmic and cosmic horror, which people associate with H.P. Lovecraft. Absolutely. And, and, and the horror of H.P. Lovecraft is that sort of almost sublime, you know, the, the glimpse of these, of this sort of like the, these huge, almost infinite old ones, you know, that, and your feeling of, um, of both insignificance, but also safety because we're the ones reading it, of course. Yeah. Um, this has all been great and fantastic, uh, Roberto, but we should probably draw it to, to an end. But so I'll just, I'll just end with um, perhaps just to, to emphasize how important I think this this train of thinking and trying to think through this problem of like enchantment and wonder is um, that I spent the last couple of days watching videos coming out of it, it, Iran where there's been um, five days of like protest strikes and, and what looks like an uprising actually in Iran after the murder of a of a, a 22 year old young Kurdish woman Masha Amina by the morality police um, she was. Um, when her hijab in, in the wrong way, and it's been all these, it, you, you just see this this joy of a repent, repotentialized lies with videos of women dancing and then burning their their hijabs and uh, and the loss of fear that people have shown against the the forces of repression in that country. Uh, that we've also seen like a, quite a big uprising in Sri Lanka, and of course perhaps what might lie behind these is these more more sort of materialist concerns such as food prices are at a very uh, incredibly high level, partly because of Ukraine, partly because of of a series of droughts and so forth, extreme weather events because of climate change. And of course, the last time that, that food prices spiked in a similar way was around 2010, 2011, which was also saw this wave of protests, yeah. etc. Um and so, you know, we've ha- in the UK, we've had 10 years of, like, concern with, like, institution building organisations, perhaps joining the Labour Party, these things which are quite painful and <laughs> incremental. But we can't lose sight of that, you know, left politics also 
contains these moments of explosions where, where, where the, the, the sense of what's possible alters incredibly quickly. Um, and so in, in the face of perhaps a, a, we might be we might see a, a new wave, a new cycle of like protest rebellions and perhaps even revolutions uh, over the next year or so. I think these sorts of concepts are, are really, really useful. So I want to thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure there will be a great wave, probably the greatest wave of uprisings uh, so far. Uh, and that's why we need a good toolbox. Because these movements exactly. must uh, uh, have uh, uh, good tools at their disposal. Perfect. That is the, the best point to leave it. Thanks so much for, for, for coming and talking to me, Roberto. Thank you very much. <laughs>